The second that you're in a situation where you're procrastinating or you're thinking negative thoughts, it's your subconscious that's in charge of you. And so in order to change, you have to interrupt subconscious patterns. You see, the five second rule isn't just some dumb counting backwards thing. It is a form of metacognition that interrupts the patterns stored in your subconscious brain. Counting backwards requires you to focus, which flips on your prefrontal cortex. It gives you a moment of control over what you think and do next. That's the genius of it because it is simple. You remember it and it immediately interrupts the negative and suicidal ideations that torture people. And speaking of suicide, we know of 111 people who have stopped themselves from taking their lives by 54321 asking for help. So I am here to tell you, I want you to try it. I want you to share it with people because interrupting the patterns of thought and behavior that are holding you back and pushing yourself to take action or to think something different, it is the only way you are gonna change. And this is a tool that's gonna help you bridge that gap. And if you program your mind correctly, and if you're clear about what you wanna create, your mind will help you get what you want. That's Mel Robbins in one of many clips to come in part two of our best of 2021 edition of the Ritual Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Happy holidays, everybody. Welcome. I must say it has been fun revisiting these conversations and splicing together this special episode. 2021 was a transformative year in so many ways. And part two of this recap tradition does not disappoint. But before we dive in, let's take care of business. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in Fleetfoot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted 
so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code richroll for 15% off your first purchase. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, waking up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. Today, as I look back on the year, I'm just filled with so much gratitude, not just for all of the incredible individuals who have shared their time and their wisdom and their hearts with me, but really for all of you guys, for the listeners. I don't take your attention and support for granted. I relish in our community and this recap practice 
It's just one way that I can honor all of you, a way of saying thank you in this spirit of positive change, because I believe in the power we all have to do and be better and to own and actualize our best, most authentic selves. And so with that being said, what better way to kick things off today than by sharing the wisdom of author and one of my personal heroes, Stephen Pressfield. Revered for his creative prolificacy, Stephen has 20 books to his name, including a book that radically changed my life, a book that I gift more than any other book, The War of Art. Stephen joined me on episode 584, serving up truths big and small on honing creativity, overcoming resistance, the importance of persistence, and why art is about discipline, not talent. Please enjoy this excerpt from my conversation with Stephen Pressfield. I call it resistance with a capital R. And like if we had a typewriter or a keyboard in front of me now, or you've got one there with a blank screen or a blank page in it, you would feel, we would feel a force radiating off that page, a negative force trying to push you away from it, right? And that's what I call resistance. Uh It would be the same thing as if we went out and bought an exercise bike or a treadmill and we brought it home to the house and suddenly we realized we're coming up with every excuse in the world not to get on that treadmill. Mm -hmm. So resistance is this negative force of self-sabotage that will work against us anytime we try to move from a lower level to a higher level, ethically, morally, creatively. If you have an idea for a book, if you have an idea for a podcast, if you have an idea for this studio or something that you wanna do, a voice will come into your head immediately that will say, who are you to put this thing together? This has been done a million times and it's been done better than you ever could do or ever would do. You're too old, you're too young, you're too fat, you're too skinny, you don't have enough education, you have too much education, et cetera, et cetera. And that negative force is universal. I can tell you from the thousands of emails I've got. Uh And not only is it universal, it's the same voice in all of our heads. You know, it may be tailored a little bit to you or to me, but it's the same voice. And I was never aware of that. When I first started to write as a 24 year old, resistance just kicked my ass all over the place. And I, you know, I went through a lot of stuff before I finally kind of said to myself, you know what, there's a force out there that's working against me. You know, it's not just something I'm inventing. There is a real force out there, just like gravity, just like, you know, the transit of Venus across the sky. And once I could sort of give a name to it, then I could say, okay, now I have something I can deal with. Mm. How can I overcome this? Can I develop habits that will help me overcome it? Can I organize my day in such a way? Can I change my mindset in such a way? So anyway, that's kind of my definition of resistance. Well, the first step seems to be disassociating your identity from the resistance itself, because I think what we all kind of do is self-identify with that. That is part of who we are. That's a great way of putting it, Richard. Right? I've never heard that before. So, That's exactly it. Well, you have talked about uh, you know this idea that exists outside of yourself, right? If you're just thinking, well, I can't do it. This is me telling myself this, as opposed to this external force that we can you know define as this pernicious entity working at odds with our effort to climb to that you know elevated place. 
but what was it that was like the light switch for you that allowed you to kind of come to that realization? Was it just pain? You know, it was pain, <laughs> like, I guess, but you know, I can't actually remember, there was not uh -huh. like a moment right. when I said that, or if there was to myself, oh, this is resistance. You know, just over time, I guess. Uh -huh. I mean, there was a moment that sort of where things turned around in that way for me, but I don't think I identified a, a force mm. as resistance. But what you just said, Rich, is exactly right. The, of disassociating this concept of resistance, this fact of resistance from your own identity. Like when we hear this voice in our head that says, you're not good enough, it's all been done, et cetera, et cetera. What makes that so powerful against us is we think it's our own thoughts. We think, oh, that's me assessing the situation objectively, but it's not. It's this other siren voice, this force that's just out there, that's a fact of nature. Mm. And once we can say, oh, that's not me, that kind of is the key to the whole thing. Right. I think that it's the inner war, the writer's war, the artist's war that we were talking about, that uh, in a way, to face the blank page, to write a book, to write a movie, to write whatever it is, or ultra endurance things like that, you have to be a, a warrior. One way or another, you've got to take the warrior virtues, which I would name as courage, patience, camaraderie, love for one's brothers and sisters, selflessness, and very important, the willing embracing of adversity. And there are a lot of other virtues, but those virtues that a warrior, a Spartan warrior or Alexander the Great would use for enemies out there, the artist or the endurance athlete uses those virtues against the enemies in here, right? When you're on your fourth Ironman in a, in a row and every fiber of your being is screaming out, stop, stop, you know, this is insane. You're having to call upon something, right? And I think it's that warrior mentality, the same thing that the, you know, the Spartans called on when the day three at Thermopylae, whatever. So I guess, again, I was sort of drawn to write these books and I didn't even know why, but I think I was kind of reinforcing for myself in a way, that code of honor, that sense of shame, and that ability to kind of endure and to keep going forward into the unknown. Next up is a really powerful clip that's excerpted from perhaps the most emotionally resonant episode of the year, coming from elite marathoner and ultra marathoner Tommy Rivers Pusey, offering poignant words of wisdom gleaned from his recent near-fatal battle with a rare and aggressive form of lymphoma. You know, I remember being very aware that it was serious and Anytime you have something that's going on with your respiratory system, you you really quickly lose your ego. I mean, you there's not much bartering, mm -hmm. and you can't you can't really tough your way through that. You know, you take away somebody's oxygen, and it's just a, <laughs> a matter of minutes, and you're begging for somebody, something, anything to save you. I mean, that's why <laughs> it's like being waterboarded, you know. And there's a reason why. <laughs> gosh, that, that's so effective because there's this fear that comes over you when um, everything protective within your body is telling you you're going to die. Like you're, you've got seconds, you know, unless you change something and, you know, you become desperate and whatever it is, you know, whatever it is that needs to be done to, to be able to 
make you stop feeling that yeah. you're willing to <laughs> you're willing to do it you're willing to concede and um i remember a year ago a year and a half ago bartering with whoever it is that <laughs> that's in charge of all of this you know if i can just just let me get through this year just give me one more year like if i can have a year then you know i'll gladly go and i've made it it's been a year and um Gosh, and then you get selfish. You're like, okay, five more, 20 more, 50 more, right. <laughs> you know? Because we're humans, but, man. Yeah, right? exactly. But I mean, it, it doesn't, doesn't get any better than this. It's, it really doesn't. And I mean, the tragedy is that we, that we don't see it until afterwards, you know? I, I mean, I've been thinking about um, people say like, and they lived, <laughs> and they lived happily ever after. Like the, the operative verb there is lived, you know? They were alive. That's why it was happily ever after. Then they died and it becomes a fucking tragedy, you know? But like, gosh, life is incredible. I mean, it, it just, as bad as it seems, as hard as it seems, um, it's just such a, a gift to be able to do it. And we talk about how tragic it is when somebody when something happens, you know, somebody dies, somebody gets sick, um, there's an accident, there's a disaster. And as though that's out of the norm. And in reality, the fact that we're alive, it's just, it's just a miracle. I mean, the fact that we're, that we're here, that we're, <laughs> it becomes hard to talk about this stuff because you can't express it in ways that haven't been expressed in just such cliche terms, yeah. you know, but the fact that we're, living and breathing and talking and all of this um, with everything that's going on on a space the world. rock yeah exactly that, that emits uh, oxygen that we can breathe exactly. and we give it back co2 as yeah. we're hurtling through space i mean it's all yeah. insane that's right spinning 16000 miles can't an hour really you know grok that whole thing yeah. I mean, of course obviously we intellectually understand like that life is a miracle sure but we can't fully embody that or appreciate that on yeah. a moment to moment basis and you know in my experience people who have experienced certain types of trauma or life altering you know situations like yourself come out of those experiences with obviously this renewed appreciation but there's kind of a timeline like it, that dissipates over time sure. like it's hard to hold on to that right yeah. and so here you are a year later like i feel like you really are holding on to that you know you really are in the moment like when we first sat down and you're like this is great man i'm so happy like I can feel it, like yeah. that's real. And I think that's an incredible gift for all of us to like hear you express that, for you to fully embody that and a powerful reminder of just how precious all of this is and how fleeting and how delicate and fragile. Yeah. And but I just wanna, like I want a piece of that. Like I wanna like feel that on a soul level in the way that you feel it. The lucky part is that as good as things are, they'll get bad again for all of us, right. you know? I guess the key is to not waste that suffering when, when it comes, like see it as a, see it as a gift, see it as an, as, as an opportunity to open our eyes and, and to be able to really, to value, you know, what it is that we have. Um, this normal, a normal day, you know, just realizing how incredible that is. And, the tragedy is that we don't 
recognize it until after the fact, but everything is, it's so cyclical, you know, everything that is good. Um, anytime we're in, we're having a, a good time, a comfortable time, life is good. You know, um, we can be 100% guaranteed that it's going to get bad again, yeah. you know, and as bad as it is, you can be 100% guaranteed that it's going to get good again, you know, and it's just being able to see all of it all at once and recognize, recognize what is good. And, um, and be able to really value it as it's happening. Because, you know, like I was saying, there is there is no idealistic future, you know, where it's just gonna, it's gonna all be right. And we're just gonna be happy, you know? It, happiness isn't something, we're not a victim of it. It doesn't just happen to us, you know? It's happening all the time. And it's our ability to see it and recognize it. And um, it's just, <laughs> it's just incredible, really. Next up is author, education luminary, and fellow Stanford classmate, Julie Lithgott-Hames. On the pod to promote her new book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, we discussed everything from the importance of honing conversation skills to fostering curiosity and how we can all grow up just a little bit more. Childhood had changed, so parents were arriving differently on campus. They were arriving and staying. They weren't just dropping you off or helping you move in. They felt they had a role to play in the day-to-day management of life in the life of their child. Um, And I found myself thinking, you know, this child could be in the Marines, but here they are, you know, not putting their lives in danger. They're at a well-resourced university which you're paying a tremendous amount for them to attend quite likely. What are you so afraid of, parent? Why is it that you think you need to be the one to have the run of the mill conversation with a faculty member, to get involved if there's a roommate dispute, to attend an overseas studies orientation because you Mm -hmm. don't think your child can go abroad unless you've had the orientation so that we know how we can be successful abroad. We listened to the pronouns changing. It was, we're going abroad we've gotten into this seminar. So those were some of the changes I noticed. And my job was to root for young people to thrive. And I could see that those who were overmanaged were lacking in agency. And I found myself asking, hey kid, have you ever made a choice? Have they let you make a choice? Or are you just incredibly good at doing what you're told? Yeah. And it saddened me. Yeah, it produces a certain handicap where the child not only lacks self-efficacy, but that produces lower self-esteem and a lower sense of their own inherent capabilities. And certainly, you know, Stanford is your experience, but this is not, you know, endemic simply to Stanford. Not at this all. is a this is a nationwide, if not a global thing. Absolutely. That is so fascinating and I feel like has only continued to metastasize. So the catch-all kind of umbrella phrase for this is helicopter parenting, of course, yeah. or uh, you know the tiger mom yeah. phenomenon. What is your sense of how this started and how we got to this situation? Very interestingly, there were a set of changes happening in this country in the mid eighties that conspired to in the aggregate change all of childhood. So in no particular order, Rich, five things. Stranger Danger was born with a made for TV movie, Adam, about Mm -hmm. the abduction and murder of Adam Walsh in 1983. 
and everybody watched it. There was no internet. All of your entertainment came through the big screen or the small screen or your headphones. Everybody tuned in for that show and it scared the bejesus out of everybody. So Stranger right. Danger was born 83. And then that guy's dad became the host of, what was the show that he did? Uh, where they would- America's Most Wanted. Exactly. Yeah, John yeah. Walsh, exactly. And Missing Kids began appearing on, photos began appearing on milk cartons. And yes, occasionally children were abducted by strangers. And it is of course, as we know as parents, the most horrific thing we can imagine. And yet children are more likely to die at the hands of a family member than they are at the hands of a stranger. They're more likely to die as a passenger in a car, yet we drive them in cars constantly to get them to and from their activities. So we reshape childhood around the very, very, very infinitesimal likelihood of a stranger harming our children. And we can really trace that back to that movie, Adam, 1983. The play date was born in 1984. Kids used to play with each other. We found each other, right, Rich? It was like, where are the bikes? That's where my friends are. That was a Gen X childhood. That changed. Uh, parents started arranging play with other parents, deciding with whom and when, but also watching over it, hovering, micromanaging. Are they playing with the right things? Are they bored? Let me help them. Mm -hmm. um, the self-esteem movement, give them ribbons and trophies, certificates and awards just for playing soccer or just for swimming rather than for being any good at it. The notion that we need to always praise, great job, Billy, you slid down the slide. Great job, you didn't hit Jack, yeah. you know? A Nation at Risk was published saying, American teenagers needed to be you know, more high achieving vis-a-vis -vis their international counterparts. We needed more testing, more teaching to the test. All of these things meant that childhood was now watched and managed by parents. We also got safer in cars with seatbelt laws and car seat laws and bike helmet laws and bicycles. We got safer in our transportation. It led to this mindset of uh, you can put a helmet on them always. You can bubble wrap every aspect of their environment. Prepare the road for the kid instead of prepare the kid for the road. All of those things happened in the span of three to five years. The first kids to come to college en masse with parents who couldn't let go in the late 90s were the first to have been subjected to play dates in 1984. Mm, yeah. And why does it persist? Because it works, Rich. When you stand next to the rock wall and prevent your kid from falling onto the plastic wood chips, they go unharmed. So you've saved them in that moment. But over the long term, your kid hasn't developed that kinesthetic sense of how their body works or of how to do something different or better mm -hmm. next time. Mm -hmm. So short-term win, long-term loss. Right, and on top of that, it's all set up within the construct of performance, right. right? How do I set my kid up to get into the best college? Like that is the ultimate end game. Right. And so when you're looking at short-term gains, it's all oriented around academic performance, making sure that they have the appropriate extracurriculars. And the only way to ensure that is this level of over-involvement. Right. That of course, even in the successful cases where a kid ends up at Stanford, that kid ends up knocking on your door, having tr all, all kinds of you know, <laughs> mental issues or self-esteem issues or you know, body dysmorphia. I'm sure it shows up in a million different ways where they're handicapped and unable to really figure out how to live and exist and thrive on their own. That's exactly right. So we've done the thinking for them, the planning for them, the troubleshooting, um, the fixing, the managing, the handling, all in furtherance of these outcomes we think lead to a successful mm -hmm. life. And it's almost like we take our helicopter rotors and we lift them in the helicopter and arrive them at the future we have in mind. And then we can say, look, you've arrived, yeah. you're here. And then the kid is bewildered at the place of arrival because they haven't done 
the heavy lifting. They've mm -hmm. certainly worked hard. It's not to say that kids aren't hardworking in this context, but they've been so overmanaged and overhelped. They really are unfamiliar with their own selves. In my first book, How to Raise an Adult, I call it existential impotence, unfamiliar with the self. Mm. My sense is that there's a pendulum that swings and that pendulum swings generation to generation where parents end up parenting in opposition to the way that they were parented to ensure that their kid gets what they feel like they didn't get, right? So sure. if you have the Gen Xers who were the latchkey kids who were completely unattended to, they're gonna be the ones who are more likely to show up and overparent. Is that how you feel like it works? Or have we arrived in a situation now where the pendulum is kind of locked in this place where parents are fixated in an unhealthy way on how their kids are doing and performing? I certainly agree with you that many of us want to parent either the opposite of how we were raised or we appreciate how we were raised and we wanna do it the exact same way. We don't seem to have room for nuance. I wanna point out that it was the baby boomers that started the helicopter parenting phenomenon. We mm. Gen Xers inherited it because you're in a community and you see how other parents are doing their kids' homework in the fourth grade and the seventh grade. Well, how are you not gonna do your kids' homework? Cause you need your kid to keep up, right? So we arrived as parents in an environment where helicopter parenting was already in many communities, the norm. And I find it ironic that baby boomers who questioned authority, I mean, that was their bumper sticker when they were young, they were now questioning authority on behalf of their own kids. They had forgotten that they created and matured their own voice by using it. Mm. And instead they sort of treated their own kids like little pets and projects that they would continually question authority on their behalf. Yeah. With Gen X, you know, many of us can appreciate the freedoms of that latchkey childhood. Yes, there were examples that were neglectful and harmful and none of us wanna replicate that. But you see in the Gen X memes on social media, the kind of lauding, the pride of like, you know, look what I was able to do. Look what my childhood entailed. There's pride in that. And I hope that Gen Xers listening will ask themselves, why am I not offering that same degree of freedom to my own child? Why do I want less for them? Despite what you might think, Alzheimer's is not a genetic inevitability and a diagnosis need not come with a death sentence. So how do we take an insurance policy out against succumbing to these kinds of neurodegenerative diseases? Well, neurology duo, Drs. Dean and Aisha Scherze joined me on episode 589 to break down the basics of optimizing brain health. Here's a snippet from that insightful exchange. Nobody wants to befall this fate, right? And, and you know, when we're young and vital, we think we're bulletproof and this is never gonna happen. But these diseases start to take root early in our lives. Um, we don't see the symptoms for many years. So it's all about these habits that we form around diet and lifestyle. So set us up with this paradigm that you guys have come up with and we can walk through some of these habits that you guys have realized have been extremely helpful in managing symptoms and preventing people from headed down this path. Sure, so not to go into the depth and details of the science, which we could do, and we probably will spend some hours just going into it. But when you look at the basis of the pathology that takes place in the brain and the body for that matter is, you know, just 
a few processes. These are inflammatory processes, oxidation, abnormalities in metabolism of glucose or energy, and abnormalities in the metabolism of lipid. These are the four main pathways that cause damage to the vasculature, the blood vessels in the brain, and it causes damage to the neurons and the neural connections as well. And when you look at the mechanism of how these come about, they're very closely linked to your lifestyle. So it has to do with food, uh, with the way you move and exercise, with stress management, with sleep. My goodness, sleep, such an important part of our day and also how we connect socially, emotionally to our communities. And whether it's, you know, studies coming from, say, for example, in Columbia University, where I trained from the Northern Manhattan study, or from the Rush University studies, or from the Adventist Health study, different studies from around the world. When you look at the factors that stand out that contribute to better brain health, it's nutrition, it's exercise, it's stress, it's sleep, and the one that we added is cognitive activity. Mm-hmm. So that's the when, O, the optimization. That's right. So, so when yeah. we wrote the first book, we came with this acronym, Neuro, N E U R O. Of course, it's uh, self explanatory, and it was good because we're neurologists and helped us a lot too. It all came but together. It came together. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, N is for nutrition, E is for exercise, U is for unwind, which is stress management, not just getting rid of stress, but mm-hmm. increasing good stress and getting rid of bad stress. And R is for restorative sleep, deep restorative sleep that helps cleanse the brain and has its own function and optimization of cognitive activity. Right. Some of these, if not all of them, feel like common sense. And yet also, I mean, I think the nutrition piece, everybody knows you gotta, if you wanna take care of your body, you gotta eat right, right? right. Sleep, exercise, challenging yourself mentally, being in a community of people that you're connected to. These are all things that we we kind of intuitively know are good for our health. Mm-hmm. Um, the nutrition piece, is there one that stands out as more important than the others or do these all work? Obviously this is a holistic thing, so they're all interconnected, mm-hmm. but um, if you had to pick one, is that even possible? I don't think it's fair. I guess Can if we you pick don't one? sleep at all and you eat a perfect <laughs> diet, it's not gonna matter. No, no I think it's the <laughs> no. multifaceted nature of this that actually yeah. makes a big difference. And when you look at different communities and individuals as well, you know, they're, they might excel in one thing, but they might be falling behind on others. And I mean, it's understandable. We can't really control everything, but all of them are important. What would you say? No, I, I fully agree with you. Um, I think all of it has to be done. And it's, it's incredibly empowering to know that because every time we say that somebody says, oh, my, you know, my friend did all of it, but no, none of us did all of it. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about living a, uh, let's, I'm not gonna, uh, the food part is pretty specific. I mean, not, we don't have that many communities that lived in the way that we were talking about. And we'll talk about it, you know, as far as whole food, food, whole food plant-based. We're talking about exercise, significant exercise. We're not talking about whenever we talk to our patients, they say, oh, I got, Dean, I'm fine. I, 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 I do the gardening, I do the uh-huh. walking, no. Or for example, my patients, when they say, oh, I'm, I'm walking all day long from my living room to the kitchen, back to the living room, yes. <laughs> that's not exercise. It's gotta be significant yeah. amount of exercise. Right. And then um, a stress management. It's not about just getting rid of bad stress. By the way, we none of us are doing that well. Mm-hmm. And it's not just because you meditated. Meditation is phenomenal, but also about good stress. One of the things that actually gets people to the dementia stage fastest is what they did throughout their life as far as cognitive activity and challenge. That's profoundly important. Sleep, none of us do sleep well. Just because we took some medicine, 
we're talking about a restorative sleep where people go through the circadian, you know, mm -hmm. the, the four phases of sleep, four to five times a night deeply. We invest in incredible resorts. We've been invited to different venues. I say, take that money and well, we're not gonna tell, put it in, a, in your bedroom. Uh -huh. There's a reason why we're knocked out evolutionarily. How would it make sense that you are subject to being mauled by bears and lions for one third of your life, unless it was that important? So yeah. sleep and investing in sleep is profoundly important. Um, we study we're doing the largest one with the sleep study is shows that 70% increased risk of dementia for those who have bad sleep. Mm -hmm. And then there's optimization, which is challenging mental activity. If you think you retire and you can go lie down on the beach, that's great for a few months. But if you continue, that's going to be the fastest point of decline for mm. cognition. Because if this brain, which is consuming 25% of your body's weight and realizes, oh, I'm not being used, especially at a time where you're aging, you know what it will do? It will actually shrink more rapidly. Mm -hmm. So all of it has to be done and all of them have to be done together. But the beauty is if they're done and if it's not just the diet du jour or the new resolution run or walk, and if it's lifestyle, and especially if it's lived lifestyle, which is what we're trying to do in communities, we're talking about 90% reduction in Alzheimer's, dementia, stroke, without any biohacking or vitamin du jour or any of that stuff. With regular things you have in your, you know, in your environment. And mm. I think one of the focus of our study, which is, you know, uh, the largest community-based study in the country now in beach cities is the applicability of this knowledge. I think we have tremendous amount of information about the kind of diet and the kind of exercises that are good for the brain, um, even stress management, so on and so forth. But what we haven't really focused and what I don't see much of is bridging that gap between the knowledge that we have, the incredible amount of information that we have and how people apply it mm -hmm. at their homes. That's always the trick. Yes. It really is, right. it really is. And so I think um, more focus needs to go towards that, the translation yeah. of all this amount of information we have. When it comes to Phoenix-like personal transformation, there really is no one quite like Karamo Brown who overcame tremendous adversity to enliven the best in others. The culture expert on Netflix's massive hit show, Queer Eye, Karamo is a father, is a former social worker, psychotherapist, author, and just overall stellar human. Here's a look into his powerful story that has led him to the life of service he lives today. When did, you know, the sexual identity aspect of growing up you know, come to be a thing. I mean, you can't, you sort of came to terms with that around 16 or so? 15. 15. Yeah. Um, uh, it came across very quickly. I mean, um, you know, Zach Morris on Saved by the Bell helped that a lot. You know, I yeah. kind of figured it out very quickly, like, oh, I like boys. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think the journey to accepting and love myself was a difficult one because my father was Jamaican, is Jamaican. And, um, the music and the culture previously, they've gotten a lot better, subscribed to a lot of homophobic ways. And so there was a song called Boom Bye Bye um, by an artist called Buju Bantan. 
And the song went like this, boom, bye, bye, in a bati boy, which means homosexuals, head. You're not supposed to promote these nasty men. You have to kill them dead. And that song wow. would be playing at family functions consistently. And it had a great beat and people are dancing to it. And the whole song is about killing any gay men on site. And this was like number one on the radio and number like wow. 10 on the radio here in the States. So I want you to imagine a popular song that's promoting killing gay men and I'm five, seven, eight, nine, and these songs are playing. And so I, it made me feel fearful for my own life. It made me feel you know, unsure about the love that my parents really have because if you could sing that song, unknowing right. that I was gay, then do you really love me? Are, mm -hmm. Once I say this to you, are you gonna try to kill me? Mm -hmm. You know, those are the type of things you play in your That's head. That's horrible, man. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but I think about that, you know, we still haven't gotten to a place with some um, rap, pop, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, some rock lyrics, you know, they still promote this and people don't realize that, you know, you saying no homo has a connotation to someone who, who identifies part of the LGBTQ community and who's having self-esteem issues. And every time you say no homo, how does that affect their self-esteem? Because you're saying that if I do something, no homo means it's not, it's bad. So mm -hmm. like, I, I'm not bad, that's bad, I'm not bad. And so I think it's just about being clear about what are you subscribing to and like really watching your language because language has power of how it affects people's mood, self-esteem, yeah. growth, everything. Yeah. Wow, that's heavy. And you're, are you, where, where are you at with your dad these days? Um, we have a, we have a like, you're good, I'm good. Like, hey, you know, uh -huh. you stay there. I try, the problem is, is that even my father's 70 now, um, I've, we had many years that we didn't talk at all. But then like, as I got older, I did try to reach out and he just could not, he just still to this day cannot reconcile his religion with his relationship with his son. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a problem. When you can't reconcile your religion with your relationships, then there's an issue there. Because for me, the religion is teaching you to have healthy relationships through love, but somehow the Bible is then teaching a different version of what could be coming out of other people's mouth that was mm -hmm. supposed to be. And so he's just never been able to reconcile it. And wow. so I had to come to the place and say, you know what? Since you can't reconcile that decision, I have to make a decision for myself. I have to love me more than I love you. I have to trust me more than I trust you. I have to be there for myself more than you could ever be there for me. And then that was sort of the, the first step in taking away the pressure of feeling like I have to have this relationship with my father just because he has the title father. Right, right, that's the thing. I mean, I, th I feel like most people have some version of issues you know, yeah. with their parents. <laughs> and know. it's the rare case that somebody can really process it and heal from it and get to the other side of it where they're not carrying around this burdensome, you know, resentment and anger and, you know, constantly looking in the rear view mirror, like analyzing what that experience was like. Like that takes a lot of work. And most well, people just compartmentalize it and move on. Well, one of the things that I, I used to tell myself and I try to help, especially when I worked in social services, I would tell kids um, as sort of a, 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 a something to springboard them to a happier, healthier life is that whatever situation happened, didn't happen to you, it happened for you. 
And I think that language right there, it didn't happen to me, it happened for me, is such a beautiful way of helping you to understand that, yes, you had an experience that was traumatic, but what could you learn from this experience? How can you grow? How can you be healthier? How can you be the best version of yourself? How can you start to heal? Um, Because when you say it happened to me, you live in this place of letting the trauma overtake you. It's always like, this is, this happened to me. I, I wasn't good enough. I wasn't strong enough to handle this. What did I do to make this, allow this to happen? Why wasn't I loved enough? You start to do all these whys instead of saying, this happened for me so that I could understand that I could be stronger, Mm -hmm. that I could love myself. And so when I think about the relationship that I have with my father and uncles, who couldn't reconcile their religion with their relationship with me because of my sexuality, I say, you know what, that happened for me so that I could be here today stronger, loving myself more versus it happened to me. Yeah, it's it's easier to be on the other side of it though and look at it that way, like, oh, like, yeah. like intellectually, yeah, of course. But when you're in it, you're when you're mired in it, it's very hard to like see your way through and to really grab onto that Oh, idea. 100%. That's I mean, why I think that they should teach, um, meditation. I think one of the things that I think that they should have not taken out of school was quiet time. I think, you know, they got it right in kindergarten and pre-K when you have quiet time, because what would happen is that it would allow all the kids to settle their nerves, to take a moment to reflect, to recharge. And I think we get into this as a culture, as a society, it's like you have to go, 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 go. And you don't look at social media, everything, Mm -hmm. and people don't slow down. And I think that if we had an opportunity for people to take a step back, especially in traumatic moments, through an organized, you know, through school where they're like, let's stop so you can process what's going on. I think it would allow people to then get to that intellectual place at a younger age versus being older because no one allowed me to stop. So I felt like I had to continue to run. I uh-huh. felt like I continue had to fight because of the fact that I was like, if I stop, they win. When actually, if I would have stopped sooner, I would have healed quicker. I would have won mm-hmm. um, because I would have had more understanding that this is your shit. This is not my shit. You know what I mean? We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem. A problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. 
when you or a loved one need help. Go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof, with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Okay, let's get back into it with Courtney Dewalter, the world's best female ultra runner. And when it comes to races 200 miles and longer, arguably the best period. Humble master of grit and boundary busting physical prowess, Courtney joined me on episode 618 to share the mindset techniques and tactics that have propelled her superhuman accomplishments. Here's a peek into our conversation. Let's go a little bit deeper. Tell me a little bit more about what that is when you reach that point or that limit or that place where you feel like you can't put one foot in front of the other. Like what is the, like the, the lesson that you find for yourself in that? So I call it the pain cave, that place. And uh, I guess like probably four or five years ago, I viewed the pain cave as like, place that you should try to put off as long as possible in a race, like make your pain cave be as far away from you as you can. And Mm -hmm. if you arrive to it, then you just sit in it and you try and survive the pain cave. Um, But in the past couple of years, I mean, it's just a mindset, right? It's like all in our heads, this thing. And uh, in the past couple of years, it's been the place I want to get to. So like changing it to a place where I get to celebrate that I made it there. And then that's where the work actually happens. Mm -hmm. So making the pain cave bigger is how I view it instead of like pushing the pain cave away. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, I mean, our minds are so powerful. So even just like changing the storyline makes it a whole different game. Right. So what is the story that you, like what is the the script that you flip when you're you're in that? headspace and it's getting really hard. Yeah, it's like, perfect. This is what we wanted. Like Mm -hmm. now we get to actually do the hard work of making the cave bigger. And so it's like picturing a chisel and just like making tunnels in my pain cave in my brain. Right. (laughs) You actually visualize that? Yeah, Yeah. I'm super visual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. It makes it very visceral and like real. If you can, it's not just a mantra and mantras are great. I'm sure you have mantras, but actually creating that three-dimensional image in your mind. Yeah. Yeah, and all, I mean, it's just telling myself a different story about that place where it hurts so bad, you know, where before it was like surviving it. And now it's like, this is so cool. We made it here and now uh-huh. we, we work. Yeah. As somebody who's out there pushing the envelope in your sport, um, showing the rest of us what's possible and breaking all these boundaries and barriers, how does that, 
affect your mental disposition and how you approach other facets of your life? Like how does it spill over and how you think about possibilities and potential in areas that are outside of running? I think it's possible in every area outside of running. I'm not like seeking it in any other area right now, but I think what it's shown me is that like people are selling themselves short and setting their bars too low of, of what they could actually do if they went all in on something, you know, whatever they're psyched about to just see what happens if they invest a little more time and energy into it. And what about for yourself? For myself. So you deflected a little bit there? What? Because I was never. asking you about you too. I never do that. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Uh, like, am I pursuing, am I? Well, right now you're all in on running, right? Yeah. This is 100, 110% all your focus and all your time. Um, but there are other interests I'm sure that you have and you're married and you have a relationship and I'm sure there's other goals that maybe you're thinking about for your life after running or in conjunction with your running. Talk a little bit about that and how you kind of see your life unfolding. I don't know how I see it unfolding. Cause you're just, you're right where your feet are. Yeah. What You'll I know is- wake up in the morning and decide. Yeah, I am having, like I love this chapter that mm -hmm. it's in right now. And so just enjoying that fully and knowing like chapters don't go on forever. So this ride, you know, will end at some point and mm -hmm. what comes next, I'm not sure, but I hope whatever, you know, page it flips to next, I can be just as excited about finding out what's possible in it. Punk rock icon, spiritual warrior, bhakti yoga devotee, and former monk, Raghunath Kapo graced the pod back on episode 583, dropping many a pearl on finding meaning beyond the ego, transcending the illusions that hold us back, and what it really means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. When you go to the ashram and you start living as a monk, what is the teaching like? And what is the day-to-day -day existence where you start to um, you know, intuit these mm. teachings and put them into practice? There's a lot to share. I'm, I'm working on a book right now that extracted yeah. six very powerful principles that I taught from the teachings. And uh, the first one is, and these are based on the teachings of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, um, who is a great, uh, considered by some as a child prodigy, because he was a child prodigy um, in Sanskrit. Some other people that knew him more intimately thought of him, he was a mystic because he did he, he performed so many mystical things, Christ-like mysticism. And then, but his intimate followers who are great gurus in their own right, they considered him an avatar. Mm. So his teachings were very simple. And one of him is very basic and it's a great takeaway. If you want to take away anything from today, you take this way. Stop criticizing other people. Like the sound coming out of your mouth can be toxic. And that was a powerful thing. Stop criticizing. I realized I'm living with so much criticism in my mind. That doesn't mean we should throw discernment out. We need discernment. But the condemning language that happens on a regular basis from finding fault with other people and how you would do things so much better mm. if you were doing them, cut it out. 
Stop letting that pour out of your mouth. That was That's a big one. If you want, I'll just run through these. Six yeah, let's or, do it. No, this is okay, great. This, that's one. The and first, first of all, when did this guy live? Like, is this about like, 1400, same time Columbus was showing okay, up here. Right. This person, Chaitanya uh-huh. Mahaprabhu, uh, was uh, in Bengal and traveled mm. throughout India. And, and basically he was a, it was a renaissance of bhakti. Bhakti means, con, bhakti yoga means connecting to source through love. That's all the word really means. And so a lot of the practices are singing, are cooking, are meditation, but everything is in, in, in action. Like right. you're acting in a loving way and dealing with other people. And so, um, so yeah, this is one of the teachings. I call, I, it, the book is called The Six Pillars of Bhakti. Uh-huh. Um, and, and so one is not criticizing. The second one is being tolerant, whereas criticism deals with, with other people. Another one is just dealing with life's situation and stop blaming the world for your unhappiness. Mm. And this is very powerful. It's transformational. Even if you're a materialist, this main teaching can transform your life. But if you wanna really experience like the higher echelons of meditation, it's gotta be there. Um, criticism, tolerance, and this is an, a huge one, the, number three. And if, if you can add this one to your life, it will, it's just such a game changer. It's, um, I take no offense, meaning I will not be offended on a regular basis. And that's a very common thing. Sometimes we could see somebody talking over there and I get offended. I think they're talking about me. Mm-hmm. So without provocation, I think someone's got something against me. And sometimes we'll walk around uh, holding some resentment for a person who didn't even mean anything. Uh, and that gets split in two things. Cause sometimes people don't mean anything, but due to my, some proclivity that I have that I don't trust the world, that I take an offense and I carry that resentment around with yeah. me and it becomes a burden. But sometimes people have hurt me. They've actually deliberately hurt me, but still that desire or that need to forgive has to be there. Because in, 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 the, in the bhakti culture is nothing's actually happening to me, it's happening for me. That there's mm. a benevolent energy lifting us higher and higher and higher. And we have to, t- and we have to see that everything is for my edification, for my purification, and sometimes even tragic things. Um, and so there's a, a firm faith that everything's happening for me. Now we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be heartless when it comes to someone else's suffering. Yeah. I should see, okay, oh, he's, he's having a hard time. We should feel like I have to reach out to that person. They're having a hard time. But for my own situation, I should feel like, you know, I'm going through a hard time and this must be for my, benefit, mm. what is that benefit? Mm-hmm. And I can, look at it. I can look at life like that. So we don't hold any resentment. We don't criticize, we're tolerant. Next one, we see the good in others and we let them know it. Find good. And this is where we're talking about, instead of finding what this person is doing so wrong, right. what are they doing right? Why are they good? This is a, such a powerful practice in this day and age, because otherwise we're gonna lock in and we're just gonna foster hate with others. And we're gonna have no commonality whatsoever. What do we have in common? What is right about this person? And it's such a great thing. Truthfully, it's a a marriage saver. It's a relationship saver. You know, what is good about this person? And then sharing it with them. Tell them why I appreciate you. And that lack of appreciation can really kill, it can kill love quick. 
I mean, isn't that what romance is? Is full 100% appreciation for that person. Right, and the, the, the piece, the second piece about letting that person know is, is crazy powerful. Right. And it's something that most of us don't do nearly enough of. I mean, we might have a person that would do anything for us. They would come anywhere at any time, at any moment. Uh Hey, I need your help. Can you come here? Yeah. That person, I never let them know how much I appreciate them. Sometimes the people that are the closest to us, we never share with them how much we appreciate them. The next one was quick to apologize. If you feel like you hurt someone's feeling, if you're a little obtuse and you, mm-hmm. you, you apologize first, you say, hey, I'm sorry. I don't know if that offended you, but please forgive me if it did. Mm. A big game changer. And another one is we keep a tally of how we, of how we are blessed. We keep a, a, a list of how fortunate we are. A gratitude practice. A gratitude practice. And sometimes people don't have a gratitude practice. They have a, uh-huh. this is unfair practice this is why or an entitlement practice yeah. and the problem with that is it's it's simple math entitlement makes you sad gratitude makes you happy if you feel like the world owes you everything you're always going to be miserable yeah, there's never enough the world can owe you at the ripe age of 16 after qualifying for the olympic trials Pro runner Mary Kane was quickly establishing herself as the fastest girl in a generation. Until that is, she joined Nike's elite Oregon project team run by infamous coach Alberto Salazar. After suffering immensely under Salazar's abusive coaching system, Mary bravely exposed it all in a New York Times video op-ed entitled, I was the fastest girl in America until I joined Nike. Now an advocate resolute on creating positive change for the next generation of female athletes, Mary joined me on episode 611 to share ways in which we can all work to fix women's sports. This whole situation has made me like, and this is is bad, this is something I'm working on with my therapist, but like less trusting. And it's made me like more skeptical of authority. And it's made me question sure. like society's behavior in a way that I just never had done before. And I think that's really powerful. And I think that's a great thing. But in that moment, it's like really horrifying to be like, oh my God, like this, this was condoned, this was normalized. People acted like this was okay. And I'm realizing right now how bad this was. And like, who am I kind of in this Mm -hmm. big world to like have figured it out? And I think knowing that I did, it was like, you know, 24 hours ago, I didn't. Mm -hmm. And like that person almost scared me. And I was like, I need to help them. And obviously I couldn't go back in time and help myself. So how can I pass it forward to the next person? You know, it was like my immediate reaction. And I remember I pulled my parents aside, like maybe the next day or like really early on in this. And like, I had a, you know, I was like, I have to tell you everything. And like, we did the deep dive and we went like, this was like an hours long conversation of me just sharing everything. And as like, you know, there's obviously a lot of tears. I can't even get through a podcast without crying. And at the end, like my parents' question was like, what are you gonna do? And I said, 
and I don't know why I think I'm going to start crying, but I was like, I don't think I'm ever going to be a pro runner again, but I love this sport. <laughs> Nobody's ever going to sign me. Nobody's ever going to follow me again. I said, but I can't live with myself if I don't share this. And if I don't like help that one person. And I remember like they were so scared for me and so proud of me at the same time. And I think for them, it was just, just like, like it was almost like this happy proud and this like, you're doing something bigger than yourself. And again, we didn't think anybody would watch the video. Mm. I thought if, if anything, and I'm, I'm gonna be very honest when I say this, having so many people watch that protected me in a way that I don't know do people understand. Mm -hmm. And had that been something where like a couple thousand people watched it, like the same negativity from one side of that conversation would have been louder and it probably would have been stronger. And, and you see it in how other athletes from that program have since been treated when they left and when they came forward and sure. when they were vocal. And in many ways, like, that's what I thought I was going to experience. I mean, Kara Goucher has gotten death threats. Um, you know, athletes have been called horrible things across like websites, social media, they've been gaslighted. Um, and I just, I was prepared for that. Like that was what I was signing up mm -hmm. for. And you know, the sport is one in which again, like what, what was done was really horrible. And yet, like a lot of the competitors of these organizations don't necessarily turn around and say like, oh, wow, like you're really trying to do something good in the world. Like let's, you know, like support you. If anything in the traditional space, it's much more like, no, you're not that fast anymore. Like whatever. <laughs> yeah, and um, everybody's running to protect their own at exactly. the same time. I mean, it is a David and Goliath story. It's yeah. not just, hey, this is Mary Kane and she's gonna share her story you know of how hard it was this is you basically taking on nike i mean it's you know that's a very and you're a young person like that's very scary and you still want to have this career in running so you're going to become you're risking becoming persona non grata in mm -hmm. doing this and that takes like an unbelievable amount of of courage to yeah. do that and I, I thank you for saying that. And I think it's also like important for me as I'm going and embarking on this like new endeavor and creating a team and almost like learning, like it's important to learn what not to do, right? That's, that's I have a lot of experience with what not to do. Um, but I think the other thing is that as much as that's good, you know, you have to learn what to do and you can't almost only be coming into um, this like beautiful journey of creating a team that I'm mm -hmm. embarking on with like a cynical perspective, um, which I think would be really, really easy for me to do um, if I'm honest. <laughs> and so there's so much importance The to fuck me. all those Nike guys team. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the name of the team. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, it's like really important for me to like think about like so many people who've, help me 
and so many people who supported me through that time, like the Alexis mm-hmm. or people who just like, like the Wesses who stepped up and said like, I'm here for you um, because those are the people who I can lean on and learn from when creating something beautiful versus just kind of creating something out of a fear of what was, you know, when you look on the past, it can't ever be like, I'm just trying to rewrite my own story. It's how can I really make something good going forward? The voice, the prophet of all things action sports, Salema Masekela is among many things about a surfer, a snowboarder, a skater, and the beloved host of the ESPN's X Games. On episode 594, we dove into his fascinating life story. We dug into the ways sport holds the power to break outdated paradigms and the progress many industries need to make to be truly accessible and equal to all. Move to Carlsbad. And, you know, we wake up in the morning and you're in this place. Like we drove in that night in the U-Haul and then that next morning you wake up, walk out the front door. This smells different. I never smelled this before. And look up and like it, it feel, this air feels different. Palm trees swaying. And I remember looking, panning right slowly and I recognize that we're on a hill and about a, two miles away, a mile two away is the ocean. And I'm like, huh, okay. I still don't, there's no point of reference about surfing. Mm. I'm just taking in where we're at. And like literally in that moment, as we're unloading the, uh, the U-Haul, my, my stepfather and I, like a kid comes driving by in a purple Honda Revo scooter with a full waterfall haircut, uh-huh. a tank top t-shirt, board shorts, sandals, and a book bag between his legs. Uh-huh. And I'm like, what? What is that? What kind of alien? What that, that literally yeah. was an alien. And I'm in my mind is like, is he, he's going to school? What? And a couple of days later, I go enroll in this school and everyone's dressed like that. And I'm like in literally like in like Timberland boots, jeans. I look like I've come from another planet. Mm-hmm. Everyone's speaking in this weird dialect and said, you know, dude and bro and bra and. Right, you're like run DMC and they're Spicoli. Yeah, exactly. But these kids that I met at church went to my high school and it turns out they were all surfers. And a couple of them were like deaf. They weren't like super holy. They were like, we're cool. Mm. And this kid, Justin, um, he invited me to lunch the next day at school. And I was so stoked to meet some, some kids that were cool. And you could leave campus. To go to to go to lunch, which I'd never experienced before yeah. in the East. Like we go to school, you're in prison until it's time to get out. And we went to this beach parking lot after we'd gotten food at a at a place called Carl's Jr. that I didn't know existed. And we're sitting in the car in the back of his. I mean, I'm in the in the trunk of his Subaru hatchback with, and the car's packed with everybody, like you know, eating. And they're looking out in the lineup. And I look up. And I'm like, ah, no way surfing and these guys are speaking in the language, talking about what they're seeing, waves and swell. And I'm just sitting there quiet, like what? I'm flashing back to a year ago in Bondi and I was was like, hey, I've seen this before. And they're like, whatever, dude. I'm like, no, I was in Australia last year at Bondi Beach and they're like, now wait, what? (laughs) 
pre-internet, pre like Bondi Beach must have been like Oz. Yeah, right? like know? seen it in magazines and yeah. movies. And also, mind you, there's like a couple You're thousand. You're the least likely guy least they likely. would ever imagine. There's two other been, black kids right. in the school. Yeah. <laughs> one runs track and the other one plays football and I've shown up. Mm -hmm. And they're like, what are you talking about? And then I would tell them my story and like, Paul Simon, my dad, et cetera. Like, who, what, who are you? Like, I'm like, I wanna do that. Like I saw this and I was like, if I ever get a chance, I told Justin, I'm like, I wanna, I wanna try it. And he's like, all right, be at my house on Saturday. And that's how I got to experience surfing. Yeah. You know, he went there and they had a wetsuit and board for me and put the wetsuit on backwards. Everyone laughed and right. whatever, and finally it. made it out. You ended up surfing like 170 days in a row, right? Without yeah. missing a day. Yeah, I, I served. So there's a, you were committed to figure this out. The first time I stood up was like for five seconds. And it was literally like, I had gone to church thousands of times, you know, prayed in groups in large conventions and in our, our you know, our, our three different religious meetings. I never ever felt spirituality before. I'd never felt a, felt a soul calling like I did at 16 and a half, standing on a surfboard for like five seconds. The time stopped, everything changed. It literally felt like whatever some spirit poured into me. And when I came up after falling, I screamed as loud as I could. And my whole life just pivoted. And it was like, okay, this is everything now. And I'd never, it was it, the You greatest, had that clarity. I had that clarity. It was the greatest wow. spiritual awakening mm. that I could have ever asked for. At, at, at the time. Yeah, I mean, we could talk for two hours about the spirituality of surfing, but what's interesting is that it was etched into your soul in a way that almost makes it sound like some kind of past life thing. Like when you had that experience in Bondi and then when you actually connected with it, I mean, first of all, you have, you have that experience in Bondi and there's a knowingness about your path on some conscious, unconscious level then the universe conspires to move you to, you know, the epic surf spot in America. Like completely, I mean, nobody could have predicted a set of circumstances that would bring that about. And then the manner in which you just go all in on it from the outset, like it's wild. In retrospect, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, it, it just was, it just clicked. It's like, oh, this is me. Everything associated with this. I'm, I need, I need to just soak. I, I would go to the library at school and read back issues of Surfer Magazine. Like I had to learn mm -hmm. the culture, the origins, everything. And as you're coming of age and you're dealing with all the challenges of your teen angst and then the extra layers of, that were particular to my family, but every kid had a version of it. Surfing became this, mega oasis for like none mm -hmm. of that mattering. Like mm -hmm. the ultimate freedom of expression of like, that was the one place that I could express myself wholly that I couldn't do with my mom and stepdad and I couldn't even do with my dad. Like surfing literally was that place where I could just express. Even though I had the tensions of a community that thought they were the definition of the thing um, and that I, they were allowing me to, to, to visit in their mm -hmm. space. And people many times feeling uninhibited to tell me that I shouldn't be out there and using the N word, et cetera, et cetera. None of that could actually get in the way of the thing. Like when mm -hmm. I stood up to do the thing, 
there were no voices except wow. mine. Wow. Point blank, Maggie Q is the hero we all need. Actress, activist, fashion designer, and plant-based icon, Maggie is best known for her roles in action films like Mission Impossible and the Divergent films, performing her own stunts on screen and advocating for animal rights off screen. In episode 596, Maggie taught us the importance of finding your cause and giving your all fighting for it. Here's a clip from that empowering exchange. I mean, I work, you know, with a group, I'm on the board of a group called Social Compassion and Legislation. We do a lot of legislative work up in Sacramento and, you know, it's that, it is the epitome of that, right? Mm -hmm. So you're sort of like, you know, you're going into these meetings with these senators and assemblymen and people who can, you know, these are lawmakers, these are people that, that really essentially work for us, right? Mm. And, you know, I go there and I'm, you know, sort of lobbying senators and, you know, <laughs> in this building and yeah. and then there's no one there and I'm driving down Melrose and there's 40 people in line for lip gloss. Mm-hmm. And it, it bums me out because it's like, we have so much influence, you know, all you have to do is care. All you have mm-hmm. to do is show up, half of it's showing up, right? Life, gotta show mm-hmm. up and then once you show up, you know, you you really have to like be in those rooms with people that you that that may not get it, but what you're going to do in those rooms can be pretty yeah. remarkable. Well, yeah. it's one thing to be a proponent of this lifestyle, and it's another thing to really shoulder that mantle and carry that mm-hmm. responsibility yeah. to use like the platform that you have to yeah. to advocate on behalf of these causes. So, where does that like come from in you? Because it would be very easy for you to be like. I'm just, I'm doing my movies. I don't want to make waves. Sure. It is much easier to do that. People. Yeah, yeah. I know. I know it. Trust. So where's it's, that, where does that pull come from? I, I kind of feel like it's almost not even a choice in that, you know, we live this very privileged existence, like in every way. Right. And I mean that um, in things that I've earned, I mean it in things that I'm living, like, okay, I'm given my health. I have this mm-hmm. like gift of health and I can walk and I function. So that's a gift. And and then I've earned these other things where I work in Hollywood and I have certain privileges and you start to develop a voice for certain things. And it doesn't feel like a choice. It feels like a responsibility, you know, doesn't it? When you sort mm-hmm. of, when you have a lot, how do you not, and it can be anything, you know, pick what it is that you sort of feel isn't right in your mind, in your heart, in your soul. And you go out there and you really, you, you fight for it. And you hope that other people will do the same when something matters to them, because I'm sure you get this all the time. I've gotten it for 20 years. Like, oh, you don't care about kids. You don't care about women. You mm. don't care about, you know, libraries. Right. I don't know. Because you've chosen to advocate for one thing that's at the exclusion of other things that are important. This is exactly <laughs> right. it. I'm like, you're so right. Yeah. I hate children because I love the environment <laughs> right, right. or whatever it is, yeah. you know? And it's sort of, the, there's always this line. And so it, it's always this thing of like, you know, I have people that, you know, write into me and go, you care more about homeless pets than you do about homeless children. I'm like, interesting. I'm so glad that you care about homeless children. Well, I do. I said, well, t- well t- tell me more. What do you what do you do for homeless children? I'm fascinated. I want to know. Mm. Nothing. Crickets. Absolutely nothing. So I've never ever run into a person who puts themselves out there, who advocates for something they care about, regardless of what it is, who has ever criticized me. Mm. You know, and I'm in rooms with women's rights activists, my human rights friends in DC. 
we all kind of look at each other and go, thank you for what you do, because mm. what you do matters mm -hmm. in your lane and in your category. Mm -hmm. It's always people who do nothing, who have a ton to say yeah. about what you're doing. So going into this industry, I did have this work ethic that was kind of built in. I have parents who work very hard and then, uh -huh. and then Jackie. There's no one who works harder than Tom Cruise or Jackie Chan mm. on different sides of the way. Same work ethic, same just tenacity, same leadership skills. Same, I mean, they're very similar yeah. in, in that respect. Right. Yeah. And so right. you're, I'm surrounded by these people where it's like, you have to earn your way. There's no free lunch here. There's no like, you know, relying on mm. your God given skill set or looks or any of this stuff. You have to work hard. So, okay. So I had that. And it was like almost like emotional cutting. It was like very punishing the way I went about things and like, okay, I'm just gonna work super yeah. hard. And but I never felt like I had really gotten there. I had earned it. I was really worth much. I never felt that way. And that, that's a problem, right? Because no matter what you're achieving, you still, it's, it's, it's never enough, but not in an obsessive way, in an internal mm. kind of sad way. Mm -hmm. And so, it wasn't until we were actually in Rome. I think it was our first day of filming. We were on the Tiber River. Yeah, we're speeding up and Dom with Tom the speedboat stuff. Yeah, Tom yeah. does everything right. Mm -hmm. So he's manning the boat. I mean, he's the whole thing. And so we had a guy like kind of kinda crouched on the bottom. <laughs> if we have yeah, horse, if we had some like electrical uh -huh. failure or something, right? But he wasn't doing. Tom was doing everything. So it was me. It was the team, right? It was Tom, myself, Ving Rhames, and Johnny Reese Myers. Mm -hmm. So we're in this boat, and um. We have a, you know, they're changing a lens or something, right? So we're at our ones and we're just sitting there in this boat. And, and there's, it was so intimidating because there was maybe 5,000 people that had lined just to get a lined glimpse of him. Lined up on the side of the river. Oh, right, right. I mean, you, for yeah. as far as the eye could see and you're like, holy shit, I'm standing next to a movie star. This is a movie star, yeah. like legit, like there's no question this man, like the power that he holds. I mean, just a glimpse of him, like they were, it was crazy. So anyway, I'm sitting in this boat and it, you know, it's a really intimidating day. Although I felt sort of like, no, I felt good about it and it was fine. And we're sitting in the boat and Tom's like, Maggie, tell me about your, like, I haven't seen any of your US movies. And, uh -huh. and I was like, I, I don't have any US movies. <laughs> he's and, like, what? Yeah. And he goes, we cast you? He's like, I, I don't understand. What do you mean? And I said, oh, um, th this is, this is my first US movie. And his, he goes, you're kidding me. And I said, no, no, th this is my first US movie. And he's like, I don't believe this is, there's no way. He's like, Ving, and Ving's like on his phone or something. He's like, Ving, get over here, get over here. And Ving's like, yeah, hey, what's going on? And he goes, uh, this is Maggie's first US movie. And Ving goes, no shit. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, uh -huh. damn. He's like, Johnny, Johnny, you believe this? And he brings Johnny, it's like so embarrassing. So Johnny comes over and he's like, Johnny, this is Maggie's first US movie. And Johnny's like, really? No way, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. you know, So everybody's like having this conversation about me in front of me. And I'm like, yeah, that's it. And Tom's like, let me get this straight. Let me get this straight. You have not done a movie in the US. And then the first movie you do is like a $200 million like monstrosity where we're like on the Tiber River yeah. in Rome, speeding up and down with this 200 man crew, blah, 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 blah. This is your first experience. I said, yeah, that's right. And he goes, you know, Maggie, if you didn't tell me that, he goes, I would never know it. He's like, you act like you belong here. Mm. And I don't know where it came from. I looked at him and I said, I do belong here. And he looked at me and he said, you're goddamn right you do. That's fucking cool. <laughs> like that's a moment. It was, right? it was really like, 
like, I can't believe I just said that to him. I, like, like, got, where did, ch- I got chills just but hearing I, that. Well, like, I'm that's like, where did that cool. even come yeah. from? Like, I don't have the confidence to say that, uh-huh. but I know that I put you in paid your dues. eight you were, years yeah, of you blood, did, sweat, and right, tears, right, right. literally, by yeah. the way. And, and I was there and I'm like, well, screw it. Like, why, why shouldn't I be here? Mm-hmm. But that is not to say that, that I took it for granted where I thought I was like special and like, oh, it had to be me. No, I, by the way, like, I don't care who it is. It can always be someone else. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be you. It doesn't right. have to be me. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's keeping that in mind, I think that keeps it all into perspective right. for me in Hollywood. Right, that's yeah. such a good story. As a plant-based endurance athlete, it's probably no surprise that the question I get asked most frequently is, where do you get your protein? Well, to help me dive into the nuances of this understandable inquiry, Matt Frazier and Robert Cheek, authors of the aptly titled book, The Plant-Based Athlete, joined me to break down the basics of optimizing athleticism from strength training to endurance, all on the power of plants. Here are a few of their thoughts on plant-based performance lifted from episode 608. More than like, this is the trick to becoming a great athlete. Like that's not really what this is about. It, it turns out that it is that for the right person. And there are lots of people who, including all of us, I think, who kind of experienced our, our, the most success we had athletically once we went plant-based. Uh, but for me, it's more that like, you can do this and you can get all these great benefits of the longevity really and health span. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, that's what it's all about. I mean, I, I just think, um, I, you know, you, you mentioned like the omnivorous diet, like what's wrong with this? It, this is natural, but natural doesn't really affect, it doesn't really get into health, right? Nature selects for reaching reproductive age and a few years past to raise your kids, but it's not really about what gets you to 80, 90 and, and right. keep moving and being healthy because that doesn't matter for for natural selection. So to me, that's like where we should think about like, not like what is, and I don't honestly know what is the most natural diet or whatever that even means. Uh, but which one is the data saying is keeping people, giving them the longest health, health span, keeping them mobile and happy and mm-hmm. active and, and healthy and alive. And, and it looks a lot to me like that's the plant-based diet. That, that seems to be where the science is all pointing these days. Right, right. Your on-ramp, Robert, was ethics. Um, Matt, yours was more health-related. Mine was vanity, <laughs> <laughs> vanity and health and athletic performance ultimately. But what's so amazing and beautiful about how this movement has blossomed is that now there are all these on-ramps from the ethical considerations, of course, to sustainability, to climate change concerns, environmentally uh, sensitive, you know, which we all should be, of course, and the longevity, health considerations of the foods that we eat. And now with this book, Plant-Based Athletic Performance. And I think it's so great because just like all the athletes profiled in your book, different people connect with and, and resonate with different individuals, right? So not everybody is gonna cotton on to the ethical argument, but perhaps they're concerned about the environment. And the way that I look at it as this umbrella lifestyle that checks every single box. Like you can opt out of the chronic lifestyle illnesses that are unnecessarily killing millions of people. Obesity rates right now are through the roof. Diabetes, it's predicted something like 50% of Americans Mm -hmm. are gonna be diabetic by 2030. Uh, All of these chronic illnesses are lifestyle illnesses directly correlated to the foods that we're eating. Meanwhile, we're decimating the planet 
because animal agriculture just requires too many inputs, too much land, too many resources for us to sustainably produce enough animal products for the planet to eat as we careen down this path towards 10 billion people living on this planet. But the truth is most people are walking around thinking about themselves. They're like, that's fine. But like, I just wanna be buffed and I wanna eat what I wanna eat and I wanna be able to kill it in the gym or you know, qualify for Boston or whatever it is. And the truth is, is that all of those goals are not just possible, but more possible by dint of learning what you guys have laid out in this book. When, and when you read the stories, one of the things you'll notice is that what brought people to a plant-based diet in the first place? For many people, it's inflammation. It's pain that they feel even as a young person. Like take David Carter, uh, NFL lineman. I mean, a completely star athlete in his 20s and he can barely push himself out of a bathtub because his, his joints hurt so badly. And this is a guy who's supposed to be in his prime. He's playing mm -hmm. in the NFL. And then when he went to a plant-based diet, not only did he drop weight, which helped him get rid of some body fat and then which he later added the weight back on with more muscle, he got faster, he got stronger, but the pain went away. I mean, the pain just right. went away. And his career lasted slightly longer than the average NFL career. And he's been you know, in incredible shape since then too. I've seen him in his retirement and he looks fantastic. And you look at other athletes, national champion cyclists who had inflammation in their knees and at age 19, you know, had you know, pain that made their career suffer to some degree. And then a plant-based diet eradicated that and they were able to perform and then become champions on all these different levels. And I know, you know Fiona Oaks, she's someone sure. you know and have talked to. I mean, she didn't have a, a, a kneecap in her right knee and wasn't even supposed to walk or let alone run and went on to overcome that and has been plant-based since age five or so, uh, vegan for nearly 50 years and, and has gone on to set Guinness World Records. And when you look across the board, men or women, doesn't matter the sport, so many people came to this lifestyle to reduce inflammation, improve recovery, mm -hmm and have better results. And that's what they did. And it's so fun to tell those stories. There's also stories of people who had all kinds of uh, problems with addiction, you know, and overcame that. Mm -hmm. You know, like Dotsie Bausch is open about that. And, and John Joseph's rough childhood, mm -hmm. you know, like these are, these are inspirational and in a lot of ways their success is aspirational. And that's what, I mean, I get moved every time yeah. I read the book because of those stories. Just but, this past week, have you guys been following the Iron Cowboy who's trying to do these 100 Ironmans in a row? You, you was, aware of this guy? I was a couple of years ago. Is no, he did. Well, he did 50 and 50 Ironmans in 50 states in ah. 50 days, but now he's in the midst of trying to do this thing called Conquer 100, where he's doing 100. He goes out the front door of his house and does an Ironman every day. And he's on like day 72 right now or something like that. It's <laughs> wow. like, <that's> insane, <laughs> right? Like every single day doing an Ironman. And he's had, you know, struggles that he's overcome. Like he, and the whole thing is playing out on Instagram stories. And, He'll, he's very transparent about his injuries or what he's dealing with. Like, this is no small feat, like this is a big deal. But just the other day, the reason I'm bringing this up is just the other day, I think it was yesterday, he switched up his diet like a week ago. I've been trying to encourage this guy to go plant-based for a long time. And I've kinda, you know, he flirts with it, but then he goes, you know, whatever. I don't know what he was eating, you know, for the first 50 some odd of these Ironmans, but he switched up his diet. I can only suspect that it became much more whole food based and more plant forward or plant leaning. I, I'm not gonna say he went plant based, I know he didn't, but I know that he, he started building into his daily routine a lot more whole foods. 
And he said that he dropped five pounds of inflammation. Like, and he <laughs> felt, he went, and then the next four days, he felt the best, like through 68 to 72 of these Ironmans, he said he felt the best that he had felt so far. So my point being that inflammation is not just a real thing. Like that's, a, that's, a, that's an extreme example of the impact of the foods that you're eating on your body's response to uh, exercise induced stress and how important it is. So if you're looking to recover, eating a plant centric diet, plant-based diet is going to take you a long way towards you know, reducing that inflammation that impedes your body's ability to repair itself in between workouts. And in turn, of course, you know, will power you through you know, bigger breakthroughs than you would have ordinarily because that inflammation stunts your, your body's ability to adapt and grow. Yeah, that's like, everyone always asks what the mechanism is. They're like, well, why does a plant-based diet supposedly so much better for sports if you're claiming that it is? And no one's ever really, you know, known, we, we don't know what it is. It just, it seems like you stop getting injured. And, but Brendan Brazier back in the, you know, early 2000s was saying that it was when he, when he experimented with a bunch of diets back in high school, he found that this was the one that let him recover fastest and get back so he could get in, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, 10 workouts in a week when the competition could only get six or something like that. And so I think that's that's a huge part of what, you know, of the story behind why a plant-based diet seems to be so good for sports is that the anti-inflammatory compounds that are just naturally part of it without even trying, much less if you actually do try and seek out the foods that, that would maximize that, uh, it just allows you to get back out there faster mm-hmm. and, and be back out there 100% or very close to it rather than every time you come out, you're a little bit worse so that eventually an injury follows. Former lawyer turned CNN legal analyst, Mel Robbins, absolutely turntables in the RRP community. One of the most widely booked public speakers in the world with followers in the millions. Mel dropped by the studio to promote her new book, The High Five Habit, and basically just ignited a movement of self-belief along the way. Here's a peek into our conversation back on episode 630. Well, let me tell you my intention for this conversation, that you listening to us have this podcast be that crack that lets some light in and becomes a sliding door that you might just see, oh, wow, maybe if that phone call I'm avoiding Mm -hmm. or counting backwards five, four, three, two, one, or high-fiving myself in the mirror, even though I don't think I deserve it. And I think it's stupid and I'm a failure. And why is this gonna help? that you try it. Yeah. Because I think that you can trace back again, back to our dots analogy. Any change in trajectory was just a moment. And for me, that moment was when the alarm went off, I just counted backwards like NASA launches a rocket, five, four, three, two, one, and I stood up. And you know what my first reaction to it was? This is fucking stupid. Correct. (laughs) Resignation. Yeah. It was immediately like, Okay, so you can get out of bed. So fucking what? You're $800,000 in debt, Mel. How is this gonna help? And thankfully I thought, well, what the hell do I have to lose? Why not just for one day, anytime, Mel, you know what you should do, but you don't feel like it. Or anytime your emotions start to hijack you or anytime you feel afraid or anxious or whatever, why don't you just count backwards and see what happens? Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. Yeah. And I haven't looked back. I think the power of it 
Cause it is like on some level, it, it really is fucking stupid. Oh, And totally. when I first saw you on Facebook or whatever, before I knew you and I was like, who is this? What is this? You can come, say the word, fucking, I don't care. I can take it, break. I was like, the five, come on. You know, this is a bunch of bullshit, right? Now I've gotten to know you, I adore you, I love you. I think you're brilliant and, and talented in so many ways, um, but it took me a minute to get my head around this thing. But I think where I'm at now with it, there's a certain genius in the simplicity and the low hanging fruit nature of it. Like I had to pick up a phone and make a very difficult phone call. That phone weighs a thousand pounds. Yeah. That's a leap, right? But to say, well, I can count down from five to one, right? I could, I could do that at least. Like it's creating permission and a welcome mat and something that's so accessible for anybody, no matter how much pain they're in or whatever circumstances they might find themselves in. So whether it's counting down from five to one or giving yourself a high five in the mirror, it may seem like childish or silly, but in truth, there's a, there's a neurochemical thing that takes place that sets in motion a chain of events that allow you to take that initial action and that then puts you in a position to take further actions. And that's where the cascading effect happens and lives change. Well, you said it earlier. So let me hit you with the science because the fact is I used it in secret for three years to 54321 pick up that phone that weighed a thousand pounds. And part of the genius of this is that when you start counting backwards, you've already committed to taking action. So the counting itself moves you from a bias towards thinking toward a bias toward action. And the more you repeat it, the more you break the pattern of thinking and you program in a pattern of taking small actions. It creates agile moves and agile mindset. So that's one thing. The second thing that's crazy cool about this is that the reason why it's so fucking hard to change is because you talk about changing with the prefrontal cortex. You're mm -hmm. conscious when you sit in your therapist chair or you're listening to me and Rich and you're using this sort of strategic part of your brain. The second that you're in a situation where you're procrastinating or you're thinking negative thoughts, it's your subconscious that's in charge of you. And so in order to change, you have to interrupt subconscious patterns. You see the five second rule isn't just some dumb counting backwards thing. It is a form of metacognition that interrupts the pattern stored in your subconscious brain. Counting backwards requires you to focus, which flips on your prefrontal cortex it gives you a moment of control over what you think and do next. That's the genius of it. And the th reason why I'm so fucking passionate about this is not only because kids can use it and senior citizens can use it. You don't have to have any kind of education or speak any kind of language. It works for anybody that uses it is because I am now standing with millions of people that have tried it and uh, the, we have pediatricians around the world that are using it to help kids interrupt thoughts that trigger anxiety, veterans organizations that are using 54321 to help reprogram responses to triggers. We had an entire wing of a Pennsylvania psychiatric inpatient nursing unit show up at the talk show to tell me that of all of the tools that they give people that have an inpatient commit, the single most positive and effective tool is the five second rule mm. because it is simple, you remember it, and it immediately interrupts the negative and suicidal ideations that torture people. And speaking of suicide, we know of 111 people 
who have stopped themselves from taking their lives by five, four, three, two, one, asking for help. Mm. So I am here to tell you, I don't give a fuck how stupid you think this is. I want you to try it. I want you to share it with people because interrupting the patterns of thought and behavior that are holding you back and pushing yourself to take action or to think something different, it is the only way you are gonna change. And this is a tool that's gonna help you bridge that gap. Boom! I think it's safe to say that there is no one quite like the singular and the bold David Cho. An icon and an artist in many different senses, David is best known for his Vice special, Thumbs Up, as well as The Cho Show on FX. But what interests me most about David has nothing to do with his copious talent, his wealth, or his fame. Instead, it's really just all about his honesty. He has this rare, beautiful, and raw vulnerability that is both sweet and endearing. So here's a slice of his wildlife story lifted from episode 626. So I've been to every type of 12-step meeting mm-hmm. and ones like, because I'll be in a city where, oh shit, I can't find a gamblers, overeaters yeah. or, or a sex and love addict or whatever the addiction, codependence. Yeah. I have- You're I, Helena Bonham Carter and Fight Club or exactly. Norton. Yeah. And they're like, oh, there's only an A meeting or Narcotics Anonymous or Marijuana Anonymous. So I'll, I'll go to that meeting, even though that's not my addiction. And as I listen to thousands of people share their story, I go, oh, it's all gambling. Every addiction is gambling addiction. Every single, when you drink and you get in a car, you're like, I kind of don't care if I make it home Mm -hmm. or not, right? That's gambling. When you're like having sex and you're like, I'm not gonna wear a condom. And you're like, oh, I might have a kid. I might get AIDS. I might, that's gambling. And, And so to go to my first Gamblers Anonymous meeting after going to 400 AA meetings in Los Angeles, I was, I was shocked because AA meetings and and drug um, NA meetings are kind of like parties in LA, right? Like it's mm-hmm. very social. There, bright lights, yeah, a lot especially of, in LA, three hundred people. Two, you know, there's celebrities, speaker. You know, it's when you go to a, a sex addicts meeting, a gamblers addicts meeting. Uh, you know, the process ones. There's more shame. Yeah. So the it's, lights are it's a little really lower. Fucking dark. There's a yeah. It's it's darker. There's a lot of um, shares that end with suicide attempts. You know. So I went to a GA meeting and we went in a circle and every single share, it was a small meeting, it was like six people. Um, every single person shared about how they try to kill themselves. And I've said this before, it's the reason why they don't have balconies in Vegas because if they did, yeah. there'd be someone jumping off mm-hmm. every day. One out of four gambling addicts kills themselves. Um, so people go, G- gambling, I don't understand. It's like, so I'm sitting at the meeting and everyone's like, telling how much money they've stolen from their family or lied and manipulated people out of so that they could keep gambling, getting that one lotto scratcher, horse rate, everything, right? And I'm scared to share because it's going around the circle and it gets to me and I'm like, I just won $3 million at my last, you know? That's so crazy. And I feel exactly the same as you. Mm-hmm. You just said you broke into a car to steal a quarter so you can get the next scratcher I'm sitting here telling you I have two rotting vi- uh, lobsters in my in my hotel room. I'm having sex with all these prostitutes and gambling with millions of dollars, winning, h- handing like $100 bills to everyone I know, and I feel exactly the same as you. So, I sat there and 
I go, how do I feel? How did I feel when I won $3 million at the, on my last trip, right? And I'm playing a quarter million dollar hands of blackjack in private, private rooms, you know? And at that point I felt very little, you know? But it, like you win $3 million, it feels good, but not that good. Cause I, don't, I was already rich. When I lose $3 million and even better yet, when I lose 30 million, then that feels amazing, mm. right? That feels amazing. So I think that was the disconnect with trying to talk to people in my tribe who are addicts and people who aren't addicts, right? And it doesn't matter if you're an addict or you're not an addict because everyone knows an addict or at least has one in their family. So that's the thing when people go, I don't, but I don't understand. Why don't you stop drinking or why don't you yeah. stop? Why don't you stop the behavior? It's like, I wanna fucking lose. That's why, mm -hmm. do you get it? Do you understand now? I don't wanna win. I'm happier when I'm losing. I wanna lose everything. But that's even harder for somebody to understand because you're not operating on a rational plane. Right. You know, you're trying to, uh, you know, numb the discomfort of your internal pain while also seeking to feel something that will make you feel alive. And if winning's not gonna do it, losing certainly is going to. to have, it doesn't matter what that feeling is, as long as it's a feeling different from however you feel. Right, and so, sorry, I got fired up there for yeah. a second. Go ahead, no. <laughs> um, so that's hard to explain. That's hard to understand. Like, wait, you know, you're trying to wrap your non-addict brain around someone who's doing everything they can to run away from everything, feel numb, feel nothing, feel everything. And so everything was off. You know, I did, I did like these expensive brain scans to show that I had like frontal, like, like a kind of um, temporary brain damage from just like complete overstimulation. Like, yeah, your dopamine must've been completely fucked up. And so doctor's orders take a year off and I had to sit in that and it's like, well, um, when was that? This was um, seven years ago. So is this like the, the bottom? I had never hit a bottom, um, which, you know, when I asked you about the podcast and you're like, it's good and, it, and, and there's the, the negative. So one of the things that I've, I taught myself into being a successful gambler was, it's the golden rule, get out while you're ahead, mm -hmm. right? It's like, how do you win at life? Get out while, it's like, uh, I look at a guy like Conor McGregor, like just loved and, you know, just dude, if he had just stopped mm -hmm. like three, four fights ago, he would just be a legend forever. And now he's starting to turn into the villain. And I'm like, fuck, if he just got out while he's ahead. And I think of, you know, a, a lot of people like that, but you get addicted to the tension or what, you know, whatever right. the thing is. If you don't, and, and if you don't, you know, die at 27 and right. become that like glorified, Right, Martyr. and that's what I was playing for. I was trying yeah. to die. I was like, once I hit 30, I was like, shit, it was supposed to happen before that. Now I'm 45. So um, the positives, if I'm looking at the bright side of gambling, it had taught me, I had taught myself through discipline and hard work how to get out while I was ahead. So- um, Which is a very non-addict thing. Oh, right. And, and, I, and I was like, man, I've been to jail. Um, multiple times I've lost, um, you know, small fortunes. I've, you know, I had this like, I've always had this like kind of, no matter how much I try to hurt myself, there was, this is what it was. Um, 
I've always, uh, oh shit, I might start crying talking about it, but um, I've always my entire life have valued um, uh, um, friends over everything, right? So I've learned a lot now. I have a lot of tools. I've learned a lot of things in recovery, but I've, I have like the same friends that I've met when I was in third grade, you know, since I was eight years old. And I would do anything for my friends. And, and I know that they feel the same. So I knew like girlfriends would come and go. I knew things, but I, I was like, what is the one thing that I must, cause you hear stories. You're like, oh yeah, we used to be friends in college and you know, life happens and then you grow. And I was like, no like things come and go. The one thing that has to like stay constant in my life is friendship. So I nurtured those things. I nurtured, I made sure no matter what happened in my life, I would take trips, I would call. And, and, and when we say love, we usually tend to refer to romantic relationships. But for me, I was like, love, love is for me, like man love, me loving another man telling, you know, calling a guy to tell him how much I love him. And so, that if I didn't have that, I would be dead right now. If I didn't, ha I can tell you three stories right now where if I didn't have a guy in my life that was like, we're not doing this, mm -hmm. Dave, like I would, I would be dead right now. So mm -hmm. that's the one. And even in all the recovery places, people were like, holy fuck, dude, you're getting a letter every day from someone. Mm -hmm. Like you have, we have more friends than anyone. And I said that without that, and I know that's not, um, in the 12 steps or certain things, but like the most, one of the most important things for, for my life and my recovery is these friendships are invaluable. Spiritual psychologist, historian, philosopher, and the world's only rabbi with a black belt in jujitsu, I cherished my time with Rabbi Mordecai Finley, PhD, back on episode 614 a deep dive into the teachings of moral philosophy, spiritual psychology, skepticism, and stoicism. This exchange is appointment listening for anyone grappling with life's biggest questions. There is a definition of self because when people identify their ego self thoughts, feelings, and emotions as the self, I say, you know, there is such a larger self that you're gonna discover and you wanna get out of that prison mm -hmm. because you're observing the world through prison bars. And if you think that's all there is, you're gonna stay in that cell. But if you are willing to accept the fact that there's actually a world, this is, this, this is not dissimilar to Plato's allegory of the cave. If you actually wanna break the shackles and break out of those prison bars, there's a way. I say, and the, way, the main way you know you're living in that prison is suffering. Right. If you're suffering or you're causing other people to suffer, unnecessarily, there's an indication that your, that your uh, identification of self is insufficient. But there's a competing idea that that suffering is serving that individual in some way, right? Serving like the, the, ego the self, attachment yeah. to that suffering is playing a role in how this person navigates throughout the world. And when you come to them and say, you gotta let go of this and there's a, there's a whole larger world available to you, it's, a, it's, it is, it's terrifying, right? So it unless somebody's in sufficient amount of pain, getting them to transition out of that mm -hmm. is an uphill battle. It, it really is. So oftentimes when a person comes to me, it get, I, I have several 
I call this wisdom counseling. I have several methods depending on the person. But let's say a person comes to me and says, hey, Rabbi, what's this all about? Give me the big picture before I sign up. So I'll say, all right, I want you to give me a theory of the good in your life, every part of your life, your romantic connections, children, work, and a relatively precise, as detailed as possible, what you would like, what you would think, what would you feel, what you would say, how others would react to you as, as precise as possible. I call this a relatively precise vision for your life. Mm. If you could live optimally, what would it be like? So it's not that I say you have to, I want them to say, I have to. So I say, I'm not telling you to do anything. Mm-hmm. But if you have a relatively detailed vision that you know yourself would lead to a life, uh, a flourishing life, this, the Greek idea of eudaimonia, then the question is, what's the gap? And how do we close the gap? And if you wanna close the gap, I'll help you. I think it would be good to just end this with a few thoughts for the person who's listening or watching who is tiptoeing around the idea of what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience is trying to you know, reckon with finding a little bit more meaning and purpose in their lives and doesn't have the vernacular or the experience to really do this by themselves. Like, how do you? Sure, I love the metaphor. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's a very available metaphor, a spiritual being having a human experience, is that what mm-hmm. you said? But to mean that takes a tremendous amount of work because you have to go to your spiritual center and that is the most and only real thing. And getting to that spiritual center, um, you know, to the, to the place deep in the inner life where the love of God is flowing in through the fountain and you're standing right there in the fountain. Okay, you're at the deepest part of the soul and you come up that, out of that and you have a, one urge, which is to love other people. And anything that gets in the way of that, you gotta stop it and love life and create beauty. So, so many things come from rooting yourself into the deepest part of what I, I will call uh, the life of spirit, which for me as a religious person is the interface between the, 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 you know, the mind of God and the mind of the human being or the soul of the universe and the soul of the human being. Now, when you get there, um, it's not as if you have meaning, meaning has you. This is one thing I really believe deeply. We like to say I have meaning in my purpose in life, but if you really feel it, it arrives at you and it grabs you by the lapels and it owns mm. you. So I don't have meaning, meaning has me. I don't have purpose, purpose has me, it's claimed me. You know, going back to the stoic sense. So when you feel claimed by love, justice, truth and beauty that propels you, now that we have claimed you, here's what you must do. So what happens is that deepest sense of being claimed by the divine, I'm speaking as a religious person, when God claims you in the garments of love, justice, truth and beauty and pushes you into life, well, now you know how to be a human. And what you have to do is you have to, be, you have to live interfacing in the world, propelled by the meaning and purpose that has claimed you. For me, in the modalities of love, justice, truth and beauty, but always go back to that deep experience of the soul. So it's a constant dialectic between, you know, being present in the world and being present to the soul, present to the world, being present to the soul. 
So the person who's hearing this and says, how do I do that? You know, I would say, think deep things. You know, what is love? What is beauty? What is truth? Just start taking your consciousness and drilling through the block between the mind and the soul and drill down. I remember it happening to me when I thought, well, I have these holy words and knowing that they had soul resonance and drilling down through that granite block. And one time, and when I hit the water and the water just flowed up, uh-huh. that's what I want to tell people. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think there is a uh, epidemic of people feeling a desire for, but a lack of that animating force. And yeah. I think for those that lack it or are seeking it, that was beautifully put this idea of it claiming you, but in order to put yourself in a position to be so claimed, you have to commit to living an examined life and understand that patience is going to be important That's because the key. It's, not a, it's not a light switch. The examined life you have to examine the contents of consciousness and go to the deepest place you can and do it every day. And that you'll hit the waters. You'll hit the living waters of the soul. Mm. Just keep at it. All right, we did it, you guys. Our final guest, who better to close things out than one of my most popular guests to date, neuroscientist, Matthew Walker one of the world's leading authorities on the science of sleeping. Our conversation covered everything you need and truly ever wanted to know about, you guessed it, sleep. All in all, this is life-altering listening that will completely reshape your relationship with slumber. Here's a powerful clip from episode 600. Sleep really is right up there with outer space and the depths of the ocean (laughs) in terms of its it's, it's mysteries and you know, the, the idea that we're just beginning to learn what's actually going on. And it's not a matter of, I'm sure you get this question all the time, like, well, what's more important, REM sleep or non-REM sleep? Or what, you know, w- w- what's the, you know, the sort of significance of being deprived of one over the other, but it's really the interplay of all of these things. And the more complex you realize it to be, it becomes impossible to consider that it's not crucial to all facets of human health. That's right. And you know, when we go back to that evolutionary story of of how, you know, detrimental sleep is as a state, and it, it is, let's let's face it. You know, if there were any stage of sleep that were not important, that Mother Nature could have come in and excised and had you, you know, doing all of these benefits of wakefulness mm-hmm. that you described, I'm quite sure she would have. Mm. And what we've learned is that every stage of sleep is important different stages of sleep perform different functions for the brain and body at different times of night. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I'll often get that question. Right. People will say, how can I get more deep sleep? Or how can I get more REM sleep? And you know, I often say, well, why do you want more of that? And they say, well, isn't that the good stuff? Yeah. And the, they're both absolutely critical. Now, I could make a scientific argument that REM sleep could be a little bit more important from a simple mortality state because there were studies done back in the 1980s with rats and they've actually never been um, replicated again. I found them difficult to read. Uh, I do research in in humans. I don't do um, animal research. Um, And I think they won't be replicated for good reason. What they wanted to do is see if a lack of sleep is deathly, is a lack of sleep fatal. And they had three different flavors of the experiment. 
in the first, they took rats and they just deprived them of sleep, you know, night and day after day, night and day after day. And what they found is that those rats died within about 20 days. Mm. So in other words, rats will die as quickly from a lack of food as they will from a lack of sleep. That's how right. fundamental it is. Then the two additional flavors of the experiment, they selectively deprived them of either just rapid eye movement sleep so that they could get just non-REM, or they did the opposite. Mm -hmm. They just deprived them of non-REM and gave them REM. And firstly, both of those were fatal. But what was interesting is that the rats died from REM sleep deprivation within about 30 to 40 days. And they died from deep non-REM sleep deprivation within about 50 or 60 days. Mm. So if we want to sort of do a Coke, Pepsi challenge between sort of, you know, non-REM and REM, um, which one wins out in the mortality battle, it seems to be REM sleep. Mm -hmm. mm. And, and to me, that's interesting too. I, I, if you'd asked me where I would place my bets, I would have said non-REM. The reason is because non-REM came first. If you look during the sort of the time course of evolution of, of, across phylogeny, mm -hmm. non-REM sleep was the first sleep to emerge. And it was only when we went from reptiles, amphibians and fish, and then there was that bifurcation to birds and then mammals, did the evolution of REM sleep emerge. So REM sleep is the mm -hmm. new kid on mm -hmm. the evolutionary block. And furthermore, REM sleep evolved twice independently mm. in birds and mammals, which wow. I find, you know, is fascinating wow. too. So to come back to your point, I'm sorry, I'm drifting, but all stages of sleep are critical. Um, no one stage of sleep you can do without, without suffering detriment. Right. I think if I were to have something, a single sentence, I would say that sleep is the single most effective thing that we can do each day to reset the health of our brain and our body. Mm -hmm. That would be a beautiful place to end this, but I just realized there's an important thing we also didn't talk about that I would like you to touch on quickly. Yeah, of course. Which is you talked at the, at the outset about what happens when you get a flu shot and you're sleep deprived. We're still in the midst of this pandemic. We're slowly emerging out of it, but can you talk a little bit about what you've learned about sleep, COVID, immunity, and how people should be kind of thinking about their relationship with the virus? Yeah, so let me, uh, I'll speak about sleep and immunity sort of more generally, and then come on to sleep mm -hmm. and COVID because sleep has changed in at least four different ways because of COVID quantity, quality, timing, and dreaming. Um, so I'll try to mentally put those stickies up on my cerebral wall so I come back to them. But in terms of sleep and immunity, there is a very intimate association between your sleep health and your immune health. Firstly, what we know is that individuals who report sleeping less than seven hours a night are almost three times more likely to become infected by the rhinovirus, mm -hmm. which is the common cold, Second, we know from a prospective study in, uh, I think it was well over 30,000 women, women sleeping five hours or less a night are more than 60% more likely to develop pneumonia across a five-year period, which of course mm -hmm. is a critical part of the COVID mortality equation. We've also mentioned that statistic about if you're not getting sleep in the week before you get your flu shot, you can't produce the normal antibody response. Do we know that that's the case for COVID yet? No, we don't, but we're looking at that. Mm. We also know it's the case for hepatitis A, hepatitis B vaccination too. So I think there's a, an interesting case to be made that it could make a difference. Mm -hmm. 
We also know that just as we mentioned before, just one night of short sleep, you know, just four hours will drop those critical anti-cancer fighting cells, natural killer cells by 70%. If that's true, then what is sleep doing for our emotional health? And sleep provides us two different benefits. Firstly, it's during sleep and particularly during deep sleep where the body will be stimulated to produce many more of those critical immune factors. Mm -hmm. Even better, sleep will actually increase the sensitivity and the receptivity of your body to those increased immune factors. Mm -hmm. So you wake up the next morning as a more robust immune individual. Sleep will restock the weaponry in your immune arsenal. So on that basis, I think sleep has become very relevant in this pandemic. I really hope you enjoyed this reflection in the rear view and found these two episodes uplifting and inspiring. Thank you for watching, thank you for listening. And of course, I appreciate all the love and all the support. The podcast has just been an absolutely amazing journey and I'm just so grateful that you're on it with me and I look forward to growing and learning together in the new year ahead. If you'd like to support the show, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to simply subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube. Sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is, of course, always appreciated. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner, and other subjects, you can subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page on richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo. The video edition of the podcast was created by Dan Drake and Blake Curtis. Portraits, courtesy of David Greenberg and Grayson Wilder. Graphic elements are by Daniel Solis. And our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. I appreciate the love. I appreciate the support. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. See you back here soon. Peace. Plants. Namaste. Yeah.